0: Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. And if you're a guest and you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This is God's word. Please remain standing with me uh, in prayer. Lord, we pray as we come before you, we pray as we open your word, God, that your Holy Spirit would lead this time, that you would speak through Pastor Kyle, Lord, that our hearts would be open to what you have to say, God. We're so grateful that, uh, that you give us this opportunity, that you gave us your word, God, and I pray that we uh, don't take it lightly, um, but that we listen for your spirit, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Thank
1: you. Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see everybody this morning. Hope that you're enjoying um, just our time that we get to spend together worshiping um, Christ who is risen on the Lord's Day, where we get to remember every single Sunday is Easter. Um, I don't know if you know that, but the Lord's Day, every single Sunday we remember that Jesus is risen, that he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, and that he's coming again. Amen. Um, And because of that, there is nothing to be afraid of. Nothing in life should scare us, um, because Jesus Christ is coming back. And what a great promise that is for us all. And I hope that um, you remember it this morning, are encouraged by it. Um, I really hope that many of you can come out to um, Tom Quinton's memorial service, which is next week. Um, It's going to be a very um, special time, and of course sad time, um, to remember his life and to try to encourage his children and just grieve with them. So um, if you can come out to that, please, please make an attempt to do that. And I just wanted to thank you all, too, for your hard work and for your giving um, to help us do some of the construction and, um, that, we're, we're, that we've been doing this past week at the church. And um, you know, a lot of you have just been working hard and getting organized, and it's been really great um, to, to just see the progress, to knock walls down, and to imagine more seats being filled by people who don't know Christ yet. That's why we're doing this. We want people to come and hear the gospel. So now we've got to get busy as a church, not that we weren't already, but we've got to get busy bringing people that don't know about Christ to hear the gospel message. I mean, do we, do we really believe that without Jesus, people spend an eternity without God forever um, in a conscious um, condition of separation from God? If that is true, as the Bible testifies, oh, friends, love your neighbor, Love your neighbors. Love your family members. Bring them here. Tell them the gospel yourself. Um, don't just rely on the preaching of the, the word from the pulpit, but be a witness. Be an evangelist yourself. And, and let's, let's fill up these seats with people who don't know yet Jesus. Bring children. Bring kids. Bring your friends. You know, like any, anyone uh, with a heartbeat. <laughs> I guess not animals, but, um, but thanks for your giving. And it's just, gonna, it's just been a lot of fun. This week... Um, we're going to be trying to sheet, repair some of the walls and sheetrock and get things smooth. Next week, hopefully, we can bang out the painting. So if anyone has any particular skills in those areas, you just come let me know, and uh, we're going to have some, some work parties. It's going to be fun. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. And, oh, and by the way, um, next week is Jesse's last Sunday with us, right? Is that true? Yeah. Everyone go, oh, Okay. We're gonna. <laughs> She's getting married and moving to Guam, and we're gonna miss her terribly. But but um, we're just gonna um, celebrate next week her presence and service to Jesus Christ, and and grieve her her departure. So um, it's it's um it's a happy sad day. It's one of those happy sad days. But um but yeah. So come out for that. That's gonna be um, really interesting. Oh, and by the way, um, Victoria. I heard Victoria's coming back at the end of August with her children. Yeah, so that's just a, a point to celebrate. I found out that yesterday. So just pray for that tentatively, you know, so um, that's really encouraging. Um, just so happy um, to be be with you all again and to serve Jesus Christ together and, and to see what the Lord might do in this area, just to pray for revival and awakening in our own hearts, that we would be holy and that we would follow Jesus, that we would confess sin to each other and to God, that we wouldn't live in it or sit on it, um, that we would pray for our members, pray for each other, pray for people who might be starting to um, be uh, missing, um, and just uh, to, to gather as small groups and, and Bible studies and prayer. Just be, be alive, be vibrant with each other and together. You know, so just um, praise God for you all, and and am um, just excited to continue our look at the, the book of Philippians this morning, as our text was read in verses 15 through 18. This is uh, Paul's second category of trial that he's been experiencing as he's outlined in verses 12 through 26. The first category was his chains, if you recall. He was in prison, and obviously that's not a fun place to be. Um, it, that was a trial, a great trial, but we were reminded by Paul that, that because of his chains, what has actually turned out is that the gospel has advanced, the entire Praetorian guard, and the church was inspired and encouraged to proclaim the gospel without fear and with great boldness. So he was looking at his trial Um, through the lens of the glory of Jesus Christ rather than through what he wanted or the comforts that he desired. So Paul was able to look at the the unifying principle of his life being the glory of Jesus Christ and not so much the things, the stuff that he was pursuing out of life. He was trying to focus his life um, on the glory of Christ. But here we we, um, enter into what would be the second category of Paul's trial. Next week, we're going to look at the third category, which was which is future uncertainty. Um, I, I think there are some people here today that can identify with the fear that comes. But thinking about the future and the uncertainties that it might hold, especially if you get sick or if your job is looking kind of like tenuous and we're expecting maybe some, am I going to have enough money to retire? When am I going to pass away? All these things that sometimes um, terrorize us at night because we're afraid of the future. Paul's going to deal with that next week. The second trial is a little bit unique, though, and probably one of the most challenging trials if you've ever gone through it yourself personally. Paul is now contending with a divided, self-serving, and self-promoting church. People who are at each other's throats, people who are in it for their own personal glory and, acc- and accolade. How do he handle this? How do we handle this? What do we do about it when the church starts fighting? Now I know that none, none of you have ever experienced this in your lives, but, um, but I have, and I know for me it can be incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult, incredibly disorienting. There's a unique sting, a heaviness, an unexpectedness that we just sort of think things like this wouldn't happen in a church. What do we do about it? It bites. It's like the Kobayashi Maru. (laughs) Thank you, Missy. Missy's the only nerd in the room. How many other nerds know what I'm talking about right here? I'm I'm a nerd with you, Missy, so that was a compliment. Uh, It's a Star Trek thing. Yep. The Kobayashi Maru um, was a simulated test in the fictional Star Trek universe, and it basically depicted a no-win scenario. Like, no matter what you do, no matter what decision you make, if you go left, you're in trouble. If you go right, you're in trouble. And a lot of times, church conflicts can feel like that, right? No matter what I say, no matter what I do, I'm toast. This is not going to go good for me. Um, It's a no-win scenario. Um, the Pharisees often tried to Kobayashi Jesus. Did you know that? He would, they would try to do this often. Ask him a question that no matter what he says, he's in trouble. Right? So um, you remember he said, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Rome? Ah, we got him. We Kobayashi would him. Um, but Jesus says, remember what he said, well, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and r- render unto God what is God's. So, so they were thinking, though, if he said no, his goose is cooked by Rome. But if he says, yes, his goose is cooked by Israel. There there aren't any no-win scenarios in Christ's kingdom. There just aren't. You can't Kobayashi Maru God. It's not possible. So how does that encourage us? Despite the dysfunction and the trouble that you might encounter in your life, even in the church, Jesus will overcome every time. And he will use the trial and the ugliness for his glory and for his purpose. That's the testimony of scripture all over. So the real question is, do we believe God? Do we believe God is at his word? Because if we do, it will help us navigate those difficult times when dysfunction strikes even in the body of Christ. Now I say all this but recognize that conflict in the church can feel very desperate. It can feel very lonely. We, we sort of expect trouble to come from someone hostile to the gospel, right? Atheists aren't going to like me very much. So we kind of see it coming. We expect them to make fun of us and our moms and kick our dogs. But we don't expect that from the church. We even kind of expect that, you know, trial comes in life in general physical ways. I might get sick or I might lose my job. But in the church... It's disoriented, the called-out ones. People decorated with the cleansing blood of Christ that will be robed in righteous, um, robes of white, the righteousness of Christ. The people commanded to be united with each other. People described as new creatures. We all know this is the, the description of pe- the people of God, so how is it that this can happen into, in a place of people who testify Christ? It's just bitter to experience, I think you'll know if you've experienced it. And Paul doesn't deny the unhealth and unrest of the church. Did you notice that in this passage? He doesn't try to keep up some public persona as if to say, Christians don't fight, just don't pay any attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> right? He doesn't pretend it away. He answers it. He deals with it. He gives us direction he doesn't pretend like it doesn't happen. He says, he says, here's how you deal with it when it does happen. And if we're going to survive dysfunction in our church, when it ha- conflict in our church when it happens, notice I said when it happens. I didn't say if it happens. Mm-hmm. I said when it happens, because it will. We're people. You guys are sinners, right? Okay, me too. Right, so it's going to happen. We're going to have conflict. Someone's going to step on Marge's foot, right? and she's going to yelp. Coffee was spilled on the floor in the back and it wasn't you know like and that was actually a good thing because two people were showing great love for each other and the coffee just went flying right (laughs) that's good but if we're going to survive conflict when it comes disagreements when it comes in a way that honors jesus that doesn't injure our own soul or the soul of the church that doesn't discredit the name of Jesus to people watching us, we need to answer it too. We need to know how to deal with it. We can't pretend like it won't happen. We have to say, okay, here's what we do when it does happen. I want to consider our text this morning, examine the situation, see how Paul hand- handled this under three headings. Okay? Those preaching out of goodwill, we'll see. Those preaching out of rivalry and the important thing. Okay? And hopefully th- through those three points, we can just kind of understand a little bit more about how to handle this in our church and in our lives. Preaching out of goodwill. Here was a group preaching out of goodwill. In the opening verse, it says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now be reminded that Paul had just described that his persecution had resulted in the church becoming bold with the gospel. He's complimenting the church at this point. We think, okay, all is well. Things are going well. In spite of Paul's difficulty and trial, the church is being emboldened to proclaim Christ. And we really just aren't expecting this plot twist because he's saying that the church is inspired, empowered, fearless, and bold with the gospel. And then all of a sudden, he says... It is true, though, that some of these people preaching Christ are doing it out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So here's this plot twist that we don't expect. Paul's writing this group of believers about how the trouble that that has come upon his life has resulted in fruit. But as Horatio said in Hamlet, you remember, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Not all is well. There's a problem. Two parties emerge. You guys ever see this happen in a church? Two parties emerge. The Paulines and the anti-Paulines. The people who like Paul and think he's a great guy and the people who think he's a scumbag and they're trying to hurt him. So two groups, one that favor him and one that is against him. Those for Paul preach Christ, quote, out of goodwill. And they do so out of love for Paul, this is the next verse, knowing that he was put there for the defense of the gospel. So here's the the goodwillers, the people that know Paul is innocent, that he doesn't deserve this treatment, and they are defending Paul and preaching Christ with a pure heart. Now we need to hesitate a little bit, though, before we extol these goodwillers, (laughs) before we think, That there isn't maybe trouble kind of lurking around the corner for them too. Paul certainly is complimenting this group here, right? He says that they have a pure motive and they're preaching Christ and they have goodwill. He's certainly complimenting this group. They're demonstrating love for Paul, for the gospel, for Jesus. And having true and pure motives in their preaching. But nevertheless, what's kind of underneath this passage, what is clear, is that there are two kind of divisions in the church. People who are defending Paul and people who are against him. The church was divided, and Paul never saw the church as divided. He never classified Paul followers versus Peter followers versus Apollos followers. These are different leaders in the early church, if you don't know. In another place in scripture, do you remember this passage in Corinthians, Paul writes to the the church in Corinth, my brothers and sisters, some have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Isn't that interesting? Just we could stop there and just say, why are we quarreling? There's something wrong if we're living in a quarrel with someone else that's a brother or a sister in Christ. What I mean by this is one of you says, "I follow Paul," another, "I follow Apollos," another, "I follow Cephas," that is, that's Peter, by the way, and still another, "I follow Christ." Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I, I just you've you got to notice something different, something excuse me, unique about this passage here, because Paul is clearly being lauded by a group of people. In other words, there are clearly people that respect him so much that they think that somehow they have some extra unique blessing because they're associated with Paul. So they're giving Paul a big fat attaboy, right? You're the man, and I'm with them. And you know, he's so in other words, they're praising Paul, and Paul says, Don't do that. He's rebuking people who are praising him. Do you think that might be a little hard for you to do? (laughs) And why does he do this? It's just interesting that Paul is under criticism from some people in the church, and instead of rebuking them, he rebukes the people defending him that are on his side. Why does he do this? Because Paul knows, and, and it should be clear to every single person in this room, that we are prone to make the Christian life about Jesus' disciples rather than Jesus'. It's easy to do that. When a beloved brother in Christ is injured, we tend to start preaching them instead of Jesus. Our mission has changed from proclaiming Christ to proclaiming our party cause. Right? Now, there's no indication in our text that these goodwillers were were in a party war yet. Because Paul is kind of complimenting him, 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 them here. But Paul knows it's very easy for them, for them to slip into this, this tendency. So as to keep the church on track, Paul is delighting that Christ is being preached and he's not telling the church to defend him. He's saying delight in Christ, delight in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. On March 4th, 1797, uh, John Adams took the oath of office and became the second president of the United States of America. Did you know this? George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, skip a few, Donald Trump. <laughs> That's what I know. Well, I think Obama was before it. I know that one. <laughs> John Adams became the second president of the United States of America, took the oath of office in 1797, March 4th, among the few times in human history, a conquering general, George Washington, rebelling in a sense against a home home country, transitioned power to someone else, and didn't become the king. It would have been very easy for George Washington to say, I'm the conquering general, crown me King Washington of America. That very well could have been the story of our great country. But because he believed in the values and the principles of what they were fighting for, he didn't do that. And after a second term, he relinquished his power, transitioned power to John Adams at John Adams' inauguration because of John Adams was elected president of the United States. At the close of Adams' inauguration, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and John Adams are leaving the Congress Hall in Philadelphia. And some of you might know this story. But they're leaving. It's the end of the inauguration, and they're leaving. Adams, the new president, respectfully says, um, uh, Mr. Washington, please go ahead of me. And, Adam, and Washington, kind of knowing the significance of this moment, stops and says, no, Mr. President, you go first. You, and this, this I quote, you are now the president of the United States, and I am a private citizen. <laughs> That's just powerful if you know anything about history. So Washington insists, Mr. President, after you. Friends, godly leaders never step out in front of Jesus. And we got to be very careful when someone throws a dart at our forehead to make church about not to not make church about us. See what I mean? So, Paul, rather than saying, Hey, goodwillers, defend my cause, take up arms against these these hypocrites preaching Christ, he wants the church united and says, Unite around the gospel. Very powerful. Jesus always goes before us. We are not the mission, we are not the name to be proclaimed. He is our mission, He is our message. Paul is humbly reminding these goodwillers to preach Christ and to not preach Paul. And friends, can I suggest to you this morning that the only way that you can ever get through conflict in the church is to preach Christ, to not preach a person, another person. We should never dare step in front of Jesus, and we should never allow anyone else to push us in front of him. So Paul's remedy, preach Jesus, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who, by the way, is going to right all of the wrongs and injustices, correct all of the injuries, our defender, our provider, preach him. In the face of internal opposition and conflict, preach Christ, remember the gospel, remember the king. There were those preaching out of goodwill. And number two, there were those preaching out of rivalry. So let's look at this group of people and see what we might learn from them. It's just sad, I think, that some were preaching Christ out of, quote, selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. This is the testimony of the word of God, that there was a particular group of people preaching the gospel, there's no indication in this passage that they were distorting the gospel, that they were saying something that was heretical, that was incorrect doctrinally. The, the, Paul is has every, he's, he's saying these guys who have impure motives are preaching the gospel, and I rejoice in this. If they were preaching something else than the other places in Scripture, there are people preaching a different gospel, and Paul said this is anathema, put a curse on them. So we know they were preaching the pure gospel here. They were doing it with impure motives, with selfish ambition. And friends, isn't it easy for any one of us to do church for some other reason than giving Christ glory? Because we're trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to impress a girl. (laughs) There's some kind of impure, uh, selfish motive. We all can fall into this tendency, and these particular group of people were actively injuring a person, the Apostle Paul, so that they could make a name for themselves. They were preaching insincerely, supposing they could stir up trouble while he was in chains. So when conflict infiltrates a church community, isn't it easier, I think, at times to identify this problem? Antagonists. They're kind of easy to spot. People actively working up trouble, stirring up trouble for Paul while, while he was in chains. Kind of easy to identify these guys. And friends, we can't take the easy way out here and say, well, you know what, these people must not be saved, because saved people wouldn't do this, right? Like, it's it's very easy for us to go there at times. We know that the Bible says that, that at times there are Christian leaders that aren't Christian at all. We know that from places, wolves and sheep's clothing, the Bible calls them. We, you know, we can... We, we know the passage, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? But I will say, depart from me, worker of iniquity, I never knew you. That means pastors, some pastors might be eternally condemned to hell because of their hypocrisy and their unbelief in the gospel. So we might think, well, this group of, that's this group of people. That's why they were causing these problems and trying to injure Paul. Paul. It makes more sense in our minds to presume, oh, this must be an unbelieving person, because a Christian would never do that. But this text, by the way, just doesn't allow for this option, for this group of people. Look in verse ch- chapter 1, verse 14. Paul plainly calls them brothers and sisters. He says that the church, brothers and sisters, have risen up to preach, the, preach Christ boldly, and some of them are doing it to hurt me. So here, here, here is the church, redeemed people, saved people, rescued from God's anger towards sin, covered with the blood of Christ, clothed in robes of righteousness, causing this conflict in the church. God's redeemed in a rivalry, having selfish ambition. Friends, haven't we all done this uh, to some level and some degree in our lives? Have we never been envious or jealous of someone else in the church? And hasn't that caused us all at some point in our lives to form some kind of division or rivalry or steep us in some kind of selfish ambition? So here are these believers, saved people, sitting against Paul, trying to hurt Paul. And he doesn't explain why they were envious, He doesn't say, well, I'm a lot smarter than them, or I preach better. He doesn't get into that. He doesn't tell us why they were opposed to him or how even they tried to make trouble for him. They just said somehow in their preaching, they were making trouble for him. He's silent about it, though. He doesn't say if they were slandering him, like accusing him of some kind of sin in his character. It doesn't say if they were trying to position themselves as people of influence. We just don't know why they were doing this. It doesn't say. We know one thing, though. They committed the cardinal sin that any preacher can commit. They used their platform to preach the truth for self-promotion. Their words proclaimed the gospel, and they spoke of glorifying Christ but there was a selfish agenda. Dr. Mordier says this, their hearts were at war with their testimony. On the one hand, they were apparently faithful gospel preachers committed to declare a selfless, self-sacrificing, unself-seeking Christ. On the other hand, they indulged a different set of values self-seeking, self-regarding, moved by desire to hurt one whom Christ had died to save. Their public lives warred with their private lives and their tongues with their hearts. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of easy, I think, when you hear a verse like this to say, yeah, I remember a jerk that did that to me. (laughs) Right? Right? Don't, isn't that, let's just be honest, you don't have to raise your hand, but that's what, that's what we're all thinking right now. Yeah, I remember someone was a jerk to me like that once, they injured me. We, we, don't, we kind of forget, though, that we've probably done it a million times ourselves to somebody. And I, I can't help but think that that's what Paul is trying to establish here, and trying to do here with these naysayers, to kind of remember to check our own hearts, so that we might not drift into some kind of hypocritical proclamation of the gospel. James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. You guys know this verse, right? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire, desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. There's something that you don't have that someone else has, So you become envious and you start conflicts with that person. What's remarkable in this passage in Philippians is that Paul doesn't offer any warnings about doing this. He doesn't say, hey, you know, watch out for being envious or preaching with impure motives because, you know, God's going to smush you. He doesn't go there. By by the way, the Bible does go there in, in many other places. But Paul in this place doesn't really offer any remedies or warnings for this type of attitude, this double life. Now, Why does he not do that? This would be perfect opportunity to correct people who are clearly doing something that's wrong. The, the purpose of this passage, rather, is to show how a Christian ought to behave when dealing with a divided church. What is number three, the important thing? What does it matter, verse 18? But what does it matter? (laughs) The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. How many people have a hard time with that verse? (laughs) What does it matter? Really? Did he just say that? <laughs> what does it matter? This seems so unbelievable that he would say something like, how do we understand this? What does it matter? The important thing is this, that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I. Re-. it just seems unbelievable. Division in the church, by the way, isn't a new thing. You think, like, wow, uh, this is the first time this has ever happened in the history of the church. Well, no, he was, he was dealing with, their, with the first church, the early church. It's not a new thing. It's not incredibly surprising that it happens today in our churches. In one way or another, most churches run into this problem. So here are two sets of people claiming and preaching in the name of Christ, same gospel message, but divided. Tensions high between the two groups. Paul was dealing with a group of people's personal dis- They were after him. They were attacking him. They were trying to injure him. And he dealt with this in quite a remarkable way. He certainly couldn't approve of such behavior, right? And he certainly doesn't skirt around the fact that they were doing it. Pretending like, oh, it's not a big deal or reducing it to, to nothing. He's, he, he, he makes it plain what they were doing. They were trying to hurt me. They're envious. These are, these are hard words to be talked about in public, in a public letter. Here's this group doing this. So he's not trying to pretend it's not happening or that it's not a big deal. And, and you know what's interesting too here? He doesn't compare his own spiritual mat- maturity to theirs. Well, you know, if they were more like me, they wouldn't be doing this. He doesn't go there. Isn't it possible that Paul knew that maybe some of their anger toward him might be justified? Because he had not attained to the perfection that he would attain when Christ would come back. In other words, he was still a sinner. And could it be possible that that Paul injured them at some point? And maybe he knew this. We learn something very important here. That unity in the church must be achieved among imperfect people. You can't get, there's no way around it. If you think that you're going to accomplish a, pl- a place, a church, that is, that is united only when we stop sinning, <laughs> then good luck. What's amazing, though, is that even with the presence of the stain of sin that still rests on us as Christians, that we can still have unity. And that we don't have to be divided as a consequence. For that unity to be realized, Paul points to the first and most important device preaching Christ. Preaching Christ. Preaching it to your heart, preaching it to your neighbor, preaching it out loud, remembering the gospel. What does Paul mean by preach Christ? he's talking about the gospel for all their ills and all their qualms and all their dysfunction the gospel was being proclaimed and they are whether they're realizing it in time or not they are united in the gospel of christ so the only way that we can ever repent to each other when we have sinned against each other when there is conflict is if we remember the gospel The only way that we can forgive each other is if we remember the gospel. Well, you say, what if another person isn't doing that, though? Well, you know what Scripture says, as much as it is up to you, be at peace with all men. Pray for them. But the gospel, whether whether unity comes now or in ten years from now, the gospel is always going to be the remedy. Jesus Christ is the key to peace in conflict. So preach the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. That points to his eternal deity. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the one who created all things out of nothing, who keeps your heart pumping in your chest. He is Lord, creator, all-powerful, majestic, and all-knowing. He is Jesus, the man, the word made flesh the one who could die and be hungry and take on sickness and death so that he could carry your sins at the cross. He is Jesus, all man, all God, wrapped in one. We'll learn more about that in Philippians chapter 2. He is Christ. He is Lord, he is Jesus, and he is Christ, the promised sacrifice for the salvation of sinners. He is not just God in the flesh. He is Savior He is not just Lord. He is the rescuer. He is the redeemer. So friend, if there is any unity, it's only there. If there is any Christian unity that we can ever find, it has to be found in the gospel. It begins and ends there. There is no Christian unity without the gospel, without the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And the moment that you you might be preaching it, but when you stop believing it and living it out, that's when divisions begin. Because it incapacitates us to repent and to forgive. We cannot forgive if we don't remember the gospel because people harm us too much for us to be able to forgive them. But if we remember the gospel, that the smallest injury that we put to, put to God and his holiness sent his son to a cross and he died for us and took the injury for us, it empowers us to forgive, doesn't it? And if we remember also the gospel, that our sin was the problem, that it is it is injurious and that it's wrong, we're going to be quick to repent to each other, aren't we? You see, friends, it's not a perfect church that's united. It's a gospel church that's united. And if there are any divisions ever in a church, it is because the gospel has been forgotten. It's the only way I think that it can happen. Paul knows that if the church is going to fix this dysfunction and this schism, it starts with remembering who Jesus is and who he has made his people. It does not begin with saying, you did this wrong thing and I am innocent. It begins with the gospel. We injured Christ and he forgave us. Now let's deal with our problem. Because if you don't remember the gospel in resolving a conflict, you're never going to resolve it. It's always going to be lingering and hanging over your head. You'll never give up on, repent, on your need to repent, and you'll never be able to forgive someone who is repenting. Bishop Mule once noted that a united understanding of Christ and his gospel will tend more than anything else to straighten crooked places. Hearing Christ preach, if falling on the ears of those who trust him and believe the gospel will break up what is hard, will remind us of the grace which washed away our guilt, and will draw us to gospel union. It has to happen. That's the power of the gospel. Puritan Thomas Brooks said, labor mightily for a healing spirit. Away with all discriminating names, whatever they may hinder the applying of balm to heal your wounds. Discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for the lamb to worry another is unnatural and monstrous. John Calvin said, Among Christians, there ought to be so great a dislike of schism as that they may always avoid it so fast as lies in their power. Let me close with some insight from Pastor John Stott. This is kind of a, a little bit of a lengthy quote, so if you could just try to focus and hear this with me. I thought it was very powerful and um, worthy of repeating at the end of our service here. So he says this If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it, mo- it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? No, we shall seek to become responsible church members, active in some local manifestation of the universal church. We shall not be able to acquiesce in low standards which fall far short of the New Testament ideal Ideals for God's new society, whether mechanical or meaningless worship services or fellowship which is icy cold and spoiled by rivalries which make the Lord's Supper a farce or such inward looking isolationism as to turn the church into a ghetto which is indifferent to the outside world and its pain. If instead, like Paul, we keep before us the vision of God's new society as his family, his dwelling place, his instrument in the world, then we shall constantly be seeking to make our church's worship more authentic, its fellowship more caring, and its outreach more compassionate. In other words, we shall be ready to pray, to work, and if necessary, to suffer in order to turn the vision into reality. Would you join me in prayer? God we come to you and know at times that church life can become a ghetto. It can be icy. There can be rivalries. Oh God, when when we find ourselves in this place, I pray, Lord, that we would not abandon your people. But God that we would preach the gospel that we would rejoice in the gospel and that the gospel would heal those rivalries and that conflict and that division. God, I pray, Lord, right now, if you've given us strength in our hearts, perhaps we need to repent to a brother or a sister in Christ. I pray that we would remember the gospel. God, perhaps we need to forgive a brother or sister in Christ pray that we would remember the gospel that we have been forgiven greatly that we wouldn't harbor rivalries or bitterness or envy but that you would heal your people your church which at times can be at war within itself God would you cause humility to rise up in us so that it might heal us God, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ in a way that is saving, I pray that they would be saved this morning. If that word is kind of religious-y sounding to you, all it means is that because of sin, sin is an offense to God. God has a perfect, righteous, good law to follow. And we've all violated it. And because of that, we are the objects of his wrath and anger. And because of that, we'll be separated from him forever unless we turn to him in repentance and faith and when we do that all of our sin is put on Christ at the cross and he pays for it Jesus Christ died for sinners like us sinners like you and me and if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ not only will this give you the power to be reconciled to each other but it reconciles you to your maker, God, and creator. Friend, turn from your sin this morning. Trust in Christ and be delivered. God, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord, for this word. I pray, Lord, heal us. Help us to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.